Well, brothers and sisters, take your Bibles and open them to the book of James. And we're going to read from two passages this morning. I'm going to read from the book of James chapter 5, and then we're going to turn to Psalm 73. So for the adoration and honor for the word of the Lord, would you stand with me? And let's ask the Lord's blessing now upon us as we read and preach His word. Now, blessed God, we come, Lord, and we, we ask you for light and give us understanding. Help us, O oh Lord, to know, to have knowledge, true knowledge, and to have understanding that we might put into practice what we hear, Lord, what we believe. Cause, Lord, the truth of your word to become convictions to us. Give us this day, Lord, as we hear your word preached, a greater sense of your sovereignty and power and glory. Give us, O oh Lord, that sense of the frailty of man as we discuss, Lord, as we look at your word, as we see sickness and illness. As we read about and hear about repentance and restoration and healing, Lord, give us a proper understanding of your glory and sovereignty and of man's frailty and need. Oh, Lord, bless us. Let this sermon before anything else honor you and be faithful to the whole counsel of your word. Let this word preached, Lord, be a benefit to the souls and the hearts of your people. That we will grow in grace and in our love for you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. In James chapter 5, beloved, I want to read verse 14 through verse 16. So hear now the word of the living God. Is anyone among you sick? And then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another, so that you may be healed. And the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Now, beloved, turn your Bibles to Psalm 73. I want to begin reading at verse 1. Listen to the word of the Lord. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped for I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness. The imagination of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue parades through the earth. 
Therefore his people return to this place and waters of abundance are drunk by them. And they say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. And always at ease, they have increased in wealth surely in vain. I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence, for I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God. And then I perceived their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. Now go to verse 28. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. And I have made the Lord my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Thus ends the reading of God's Word. You may be seated. Brothers and sisters, this morning we are certainly engaging in a topic that is that causes curiosity. Some trepidation as well. We are curious when the Bible speaks of sickness and sin. But we are also very, very cautious when we read passages like this. And I think the reason we are is because of the the heresy that prevails among the faith teachers, the healing preachers that go around and and fake the charlatans, if you will, that go along peddling faith healing. But the only reason that, that those people can have any modicum of success is because they do possess a fraction of the truth. God is a healing God. Sickness can be the result of waywardness and sin. And, can be, and there can be restoration when there's prayer and repentance. The prayer of faith, James calls it. Now we must be cautious. But brothers and sisters, we also must be full Bible Christians and we must come to the Lord with a mind to receive what He has for us to know and learn. I will tell you that men like Matthew Henry, uh, Thomas Goodwin, um, Thomas Manton, and others have no problem considering what James is telling us as an ordinary function of the church itself, where the elders are called upon by the sick person, the person who has become weakened, the one who is bearing the burden of this illness. And there is a touch of recognizing that that illness could be the result of sin in their lives. They know this. This is not accidental. This is not something where you become sick and you say to yourself, well, maybe I've sinned. We know. We know. In fact, 
before I spend a little bit of time there in Psalm 73, when we go back to James, the text itself reads in a very normal way that, it, that it's not surprising at all to us when it says there in verse 15, the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Notice how it plainly reads. Now this may be a result of sin. Now this morning's message is going to relate the, though it's in this context where prayer is this focus, but we also must recognize that sin and Ill, or, or illness rather is to the glory of God. In what way? In what way can illness bring God glory? First of all, in several ways. There are multiple, illness can have a multifaceted purpose. And of course, the primary purpose of all that we do and all that goes on is what? God's glory, right? It is God's glory. But that's the primary, that's the, 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 the pinnacle of, of purpose. But now let's talk about the subordinate purposes. Those are the ones we're really interested in. Those are the ones that we have to contemplate and wrestle with. We all understand God is due glory. But what about these subordinate purposes? Well, let's look at John chapter 9. All right, let's see. Let's go to our Bibles. Look at verse 1 and 2 and 3. He says, And he passed by and saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Now notice how in that, in that question there doesn't seem to be an, admor, uh, uh, admor, an abnormality here. It seems to be ordinary. You know, there is a connection between these illnesses and diseases connected with sin. Very plainly, that was a Hebrew mind there. But notice, they had mistaken. And Jesus answered, it was neither but this man sinned, that this man sinned, nor his parents, but it was that the works of God might be displayed in him. That he might be healed and bring God glory. Look at John chapter 5, verse 14. Now, chapter 5, this is the healing of Bethsaida, the healing at Bethsaida. Look down at verse 6. We're not going to read the whole passage for the sake of time. But when Jesus saw him lying there, there he knew he had already been a long time in that condition. And he said to him, do you wish to get well? And the sick man answered, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your pallet and walk. Immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now, 
skip over some verses and look down to verse 14. Afterwards, Jesus found him, that is this man he healed, in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Look at what it says. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. Now, I point these out because I want you to understand that there is a common understanding in Scripture that sickness can, but not always, be the result of sin, the chastening hand of God. But not always. If you... uh, In fact, um, let's look at an Old Testament passage, Isaiah 33. Now we're going to find that proposition there um, in Deuteronomy 28, the blessings and cursings where the Lord tells His covenant people that if they stray from Him, they would begin to suffer distempers and illnesses. That as a nation, if they turn away from Him, if they begin to apostatize from Him, that they would begin to suffer these diseases. Now look at Isaiah 33 and verse 24. And no resident will say, I am sick. You can see here that this is this... this, be this beginning of healing here. Are the, he says this, The people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. You can see right there that Isaiah the prophet makes this connection of God's judgment, right? And what is some of the result of God's chastisement upon His people? Illness. Sickness. Now I'm going to have more about this to say in a moment. Bear with me. Let's go back and look at Psalm 73. Because Psalm 73 helps us put in perspective this uh, relationship that we have with health and well-being. We want to be healthy. We want to be well. And we don't want to be plagued in our minds with this this idea that somehow God is punishing us and we not know anything about it. But I want you to see the relationship that the psalmist has. He looks around, notice, who does he see plagued? God's people. Who does he see prospering? The slanderers of religion. The slanderers of God. They seem to be the healthiest. They seem to be the wealthiest. They seem to be the happiest. Look at what he says right there in verse 14. For I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. Look at verse 5. They, being the prosperous and ungodly, they are not in trouble as other men. They don't share these common illnesses and sicknesses and plagues as other men as it appears nor are they plagued like mankind the psalmist is staggered as he observes 
around him men who blaspheme God's name, who hate religion, or serve false gods. He sees them happy and prospering and healthy. And he says, as I look at myself and God's people, I see God's chastening hand. I see illnesses and I see the plagues of mankind. Now, we talked about these purposes of illness. Go to the last verse. I want to point it out to you. Put it in context of what we read a moment ago. But as for me... Now, notice, why did God plague this man with illness and burdens of of bodily infirmaments? Why did He do that? That's the question, right? Why do these things plague me and bother me so? Verse 28. But as for me... The nearness of God is my good. It was to draw him near to God. It was to bring in greater dependence. It was to bring in a a greater desire for God. A greater dependence. A greater joy and love and longing for God. He said, I have made the Lord my refuge. I no longer look and envy the prosperity and the wealth and the prestige and the offices and the help of the wicked. God's my refuge. And if He would plague me to draw me closer to Him, then it is my good. Now let's look at... uh, so. As we look at this, this purpose is to glorify God. Uh, the purpose is also to bring erring sinners back to God. But it is also, beloved, to sanctify the believer. And that's what we're talking about here. If you go to 2 Corinthians in chapter 12, verse 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. Paul, too, suffered from affliction. He suffered a bodily affliction and he believed that it was in his best interest and God's, the, the best interest of the kingdom of God that he be remedied and healed from this affliction and suffering. So he sought God's face and he sought that, asked God to take it away so he might be of better use to God. And God said, no. God said, I would not take this away from you. Look there with me. We'll just let the text speak for itself. Verse 8, he says, concerning this, or verse 7, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distress, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now Paul says, listen, the Lord revealed to Paul, He has sent him this affliction so that he might remain humble and dependent upon God. And that he might also make use of the ordinary means of grace in a more passionate, zealous way. I want you to think about that. I want you to think about that. 
Brothers and sisters, I want you to sincerely, sincerely think about how the Lord might send affliction into one's life to teach them to draw nearer to God. Yeah. To teach them to depend upon God. To teach them not to exalt Himself, but to sanctify them. That they wouldn't trust in their own talents and abilities, their own looks and their friends, but to trust in God. See, that's what Paul had to learn. In fact, let me show you another passage of Scripture that might actually um, stagger your mind a bit. In Hebrews, turn to Hebrews chapter 5. I want to I show you a verse about the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at chapter 5. Look at verse 8. Now he's talking about the Son of God. This is talking about Jesus. Says, Although He, that's Jesus, was a son, a son to whom? God. He learned obedience from the things which He, what? Suffered. He learned obedience. Our Lord Jesus Christ, as a man, learned from His hardships, afflictions, His sufferings, to be obedient to His Father. So you see, these are the, these are the several purposes that are, uh, that are to be related to our sin or to our sicknesses. Now, it's not uncommon. I want, to, I want to read to you something that John Calvin says here. He says, if we have committed sin, he said, this is not added only for the sake of amplifying the text, as though he had said that God would give something more to the sick than health of body. But because diseases were very often inflicted on account of sins. And by speaking of their remission, he intimates that the cause of the evil would be removed. John Calvin says quite plainly that if the one who has been afflicted for sin's sake ought to seek God's face in conjunction with that natural remedy, oil being the anointing medicine, if you will, that he might be raised up. And we indeed see that David, when afflicted with disease and seeking relief, was wholly engaged in seeking the pardon of his sins. And why did he do this, Calvin says? He says, except that while he acknowledged the effect of his faults in his punishment, he deemed that there was no other remedy but that the Lord would cease to impute to him his sins. Here's the picture. Well, I mean, we have two persons, right? We have two people in Scripture we can go back and look at. In the Old Testament, we have Job, who was afflicted and suffered greatly, not for his sins, for God's glory. 
that Job might bring God glory in the midst of the affliction, that God would prove his faith strong as God strengthened him through his faith in the means of grace, that God would demonstrate his glory and strength by, in, by, by strengthening Job through the means of grace. We have David who's on the other side of that picture. Sort of the two go together, right? We have Job. He's afflicted for the ultimate glory of God in the sense that God was going to show His grace is sufficient. And then we have David who's afflicted because of his sin. And David seeks God in order to be healed and to find restoration. We're going to look at some of those verses in a moment. Calvin goes on, he says, the prophets are full of this doctrine. Deuteronomy 28, Isaiah 33, and many, many others. That men are relieved from their evils when they are loosed from the guilt of their iniquities. Let us then know that it is the only fit remedy for our diseases and other calamities when we carefully examine ourselves, being solicitous to be reconciled to God and obtain pardon for our sins. Now I'm going to read some more here in a moment, but let's think about something. When Christians are suffering from any weakness, bodily weakness, bodily ailment, affliction, whatever the case may be. Let your mind run the gamut of diseases and age. All of these are to aid us in in, in summoning us to a closer relationship to God. All of them. All of them. But when... People fail to acknowledge the sovereignty of God and fail to acknowledge the need to draw near to God and seek only the physician and seek only the medicine and seek only any other remedy. They are guilty of atheism. As if God doesn't exist. And as if God doesn't care about the body. We bear the guilt. Is there a correlation in this country where diseases are running rampant? MS, diabetes, all different types of cancers. As we become more sophisticated, more modern, more self-reliant, more uh, uh, less dependent upon any religion, and more dependent upon science itself, isn't it interesting Have we become more disease-ridden? I'll let you think about that. To a nation that's been given the Word of God and preached the way it's been preached in this country for hundreds of years, to turn now from that God is to suffer affliction. And illnesses and diseases. Now, don't listen, don't hear your pastor say that anytime we suffer, it's because of sin. That's not what James says. James says, if 
He's suffering. Let him call upon the elders of the church who would anoint him in oil and offer up the prayer of faith in God and Christ would raise him up. If he has or she has sinned, let those sins be forgiven and let there be healing. Matthew Henry Very much in the same way, two things about comments. Matthew Henry's comments here, he says, Prayer over the sick must proceed and accompany from faith. Faith. Now, why is that an important point to make? Well, listen, if we're going to go to God and pray to Him, we need to believe that God truly has something uh, uh, something to do about it. That first of all, He does exist. Secondly, that He wants to do something about it. Thirdly, He has the power to do something about it. Right? Well, if not, is prayer is just a game. It's just a game. It's the prayer of faith, the true conviction, the belief that God is sovereign. And yes, God does bring and allow suffering among God's people. Maybe it's for the glory of God. Nevertheless, it is to draw me near to Him so that I would depend on Him more. Because the greatest need anybody has is the nearness of God. It's the greatest need. That God would be His God. That we'd be His people. I'm sorry, maybe the commercials are, are, in a sense, being so effectual in us. We think we need all this other stuff. We think we need all this other stuff. We think we need all these other peoples in relation. Bottom line is, first and foremost, we must draw near to God first. That's That's what Matthew Henry says, and along with many, many other commentators. It's the prayer of faith, Matthew Henry says. And we see the success of faith. When it is offered up by faith, what does God do? Here's what Calvin said. Calvin says, well, first of all, let's determine that God has any more use for you. Now, I want you to think about it. Calvin was right, man. Calvin did not. uh, He wasn't superfluous in his words. He wasn't wordy. He goes right to the heart. He goes right to the heart. And he says, well, well, first of all, you have to think about it. If God has more use for you. Because if God's finished with you, you're going on. You're going to heaven. You're going home. But if you can be proved useful. Useful to what? To His glory. Why would God raise you up for you to be more atheistic? Why would God raise you up for you to be, to be more humanistic? Why would God raise you up for you to just be more of a rebel? He's not going to do that. No, if He can raise you up and make you more, and there's a use for you in the kingdom of God and His glory and the service of His church and the service of the kingdom, the service of mankind in a religious way, yes, He'll raise you up. Matthew Henry says this, If sin is pardoned, either affliction shall be removed in mercy, or we shall see there is mercy in the continuance of it, but God will give. When healing is founded upon pardon, we may say with Hezekiah, Thou hast in love to my soul delivered it from the pit of corruption. Calvin says, for the one who is sick and in pain, it is a most common prayer to pray. Oh, give me comfort, give me ease, and give me health. 
But your prayer, your prayer should rather be chiefly, O Lord, pardon my sins. Turn to 1 Corinthians 11. I think more than anything else, I wanted to demonstrate uh, in this sermon the, the power of God and His sovereignty. You know, I'm, I'm just so convicted that the church of Christ doesn't really teach or doesn't really act as if God exists. He's more like a poster in a, in a, a, a teenager's room. They're sort of the signs of God and symbols of God, but there's no power of God. There's no nearness to God. There's no longing for God. There's no desire for God. I mean, there's the signs and the seals and the symbols, but there's no longing to be more with Him. 1 Corinthians 11, chapter 30. Now, Paul, in addressing the Lord's Supper, he says, For this reason... That is, some had misjudged and abused the supper. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you are dead. That's what the word sleep means. Dead. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. And when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that He will not be condemned along with the world. Brothers and sisters, simply put, Paul says, some of you are now afflicted with sickness and disease so that you might what? Be made useful to God that you might repent of your sins, judge your hearts before the Lord, and be raised up and made useful. I sort of thought about this and think it's appropriate. He says, what Christians refuse to hear with their ears and receive in their hearts will be heard and felt in their bodies. What we refuse to hear with our ears, how many sermons have we squandered? How many sermons have we failed to receive in our hearts thinking either being presumptuous upon God's goodness, presumptuous upon His grace, or I really don't have that need. But nevertheless, we will hear the sermon of affliction. For what we fail to hear with our ears and receive in our hearts, we will feel with our bodies. Thomas Manton says this. He said, Sicknesses are not tokens of God's displeasure. Job's friends were foolish to judge him by his calamity. People usually attack the tongue when God has attacked with his hand. Alas, the children of God have bodies in the, of the same make as others. Hezekiah, Job, David all, were all corrected but not condemned. He says the Roman Catholics maliciously upbraided Calvin because of his diseases. He says, you can see what he really is. Look at his frailty. They said, by his sicknesses and diseases, you can know him. 
That's what the Catholics said about Calvin, according to Thomas Manton. He goes on to close out this paragraph. He says, He was an indefatigable man, but with a sickly, weak body, the same as happened to many of the Lord's precious servants. So we don't want to go from one extreme to the next, brothers and sisters, but we want to take in balance the whole counsel of God's Word and recognize that, yes, this sickness and illness can be for the glory of God. Look what all this, uh, look what all Master Calvin accomplished in all of his body weaknesses. Way more than I will ever in all my lifetimes if I live 10, 12, 100 lifetimes. Let's go to Psalm 119. Again, spending some more time talking about this, this if you have sinned aspect. Psalm 119. I, I wanted to impress upon our minds, and I think, and, and here's why I, I think it's necessary. I'm not trying to be morbid. I'm trying to counteract the idea or at least the prevailing view that God would never, ever afflict anybody. In fact, because we have such a skewed and misunderstanding of God, we have many Christians even now questioning, is there a hell? God would never cast anybody into hell. He's just a completely loving, good God, and He would never do any of these things. And so now we don't need a doctrine of hell and judgment. So we need to be balanced. When we look at God, we need to understand who He really is. When we look at ourselves, we need to know who we are. I want you to look in Psalm 119 to verse 67. I'm going to read 65 first. You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good discernment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, what does the psalmist say? I went astray. But now I keep your word. What is the psalmist? What's the psalmist saying? The psalmist says, I recognize that going astray. Now, what does going astray look like? What do you think it looks like? What does going astray, what does it look like when a Christian goes astray? I want you to run the gamut in your mind. Think about, I want you to go, number one, well, he might not, what? Care about prayer. Might not care about the Word of God. Notice the emphasis on the Word in the text. Doesn't care about study. Doesn't care about learning. Doesn't care about growing. Learning more about God. Oh, I, I know enough. I, I'm good. I'm good. No service to God's people. All we consumed about is ourselves. We don't worry about other people. We don't shed a tear because we have failed to be compassionate. It's going astray. We fail to see God acting in history. It's just normal, normal events, right? This is what happens. That's the way we talk. That's the way we talk to people. See, we don't want to be viewed as too religious. Mm -mm, no, don't want to do that. We don't want to be too Christian. It turns people off. And so we gravitate to be no Christian. That's the result. That's what happens. People that are scared to pray out loud will cease praying privately. It will happen. It will happen. Listen to what J. Adams says. Here's a verse that sings the praises of affliction. 
It is not often that you hear counselees join in the chorus. But it is a song that every counselor must teach his counselees to sing. Affliction may come in order to purify. It may be sent in order to turn one back to the proper pathway. When we go astray, and we all do from time to time, we often need affliction to wake us up to what we have done and to where we have gone. Affliction is to the erring Christian as an alarm clock is to one who is apt to oversleep. Moreover, in addition to awakening us to our sinful ways, it often stops us and provides time for thought and reflection. When one is engaged in the hustle and bustle of life, he may take little time to think about his life. When he is stopped in his tracks by the loss of a job, by the onset of the uh, uh, belittling, uh, debil- pardon me, or the onset of a be- be- debilitating illness and the like, it can be a blessing to give him time to think seriously about his ways. There are many ways in which afflictions of all sorts may, come, may become a blessing by the returning of a counselee to the Word of God. This is therefore a key verse in the psalm for every counselor. We should remember it and use it often as the answer to much of the whining that he hears. What have you learned from God's Word during this time of trouble? It is a first class question for you to ask of those who complain. What have you learned? How have you drawn near to God? How have you used this season of affliction and hardship to be more godly? Look at verse 71. Notice what the psalmist says here. He says, It was good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Now what does the psalmist say? He says, listen, it was the affliction that woke me up. It was the affliction. It was the sermon of affliction that unplugged my ears. It was the sermon of affliction that softened my heart. It was my suffering that brought me to an awareness that I had gone astray and become so agnostic and atheistic in my practices and thinking that I didn't realize how far I had strayed. Listen to, again, Jay Adams He says, this verse, 71, is related to 67. Here is the the, the bold statement that God's providence calls for affliction. And what's the the fruit of the lips of the one being afflicted that's woken up? It was good. It was good. How is that, J. Adams says? Well, it seems plain. It brought the writer closer to an understanding of the Word of God. Now I know. I see. I understand what these verses mean. I understand these people in Scripture now. I've been afflicted. I had gone astray. Now I understand. Don't ever separate a recommitment to the Lord apart from understanding, knowledge, and zeal that accompanies that understanding. He learned the things from scriptures that he would not have learned otherwise. Affliction provided time to study the Bible. It provided an impetus to do that. It gave direction to the study. He knew what it was that he needed to find in the Bible. His study of the Bible was not unfocused. Let me open the Bible. Let me see what I'm going to read today. Oh, I'm going to read this verse. Oh, look at here. 
God speaks to me haphazardly. No, He says, no, I'm suffering. Here's my problem. Here's my sin. I need to seek God's face in the Word of God. I need to find out what it says about it. First, go to God. All of this, J. Adam says, and much more affliction may do. However, sometimes the affliction is not necessary if the Bible study and observance is forthcoming in one's own life. But if one does go astray, verse 67, it may take affliction to bring him back to the biblical path. But even God's choicest servants have undergone affliction. God's choicest servants, he says, has undergone affliction. Now let's look at another verse in this psalm and then we can make some applications. Look at, look at verse 75. These are sort of in a, in, all related together. May those who fear you see me and be glad. I'm sorry. Yeah, see me and be glad because I wait for your word. I know, O oh Lord, that your judgments are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. I want you to think about it. James has all these verses in his mind as he pens the letter. James was a Hebrew. James spent hours praying. His nickname was Camel Knees. Because he spent so much time on his knees upon a stone floor that he had developed calluses on his knees. And his nickname was Old Camel Knees. James is thinking about these passages. And he brings them right over into the New Testament practice, right over into the Christian church. And he says, brothers and sisters... If anyone is afflicted, let him call the elders of the church. That they may offer up the prayer of faith. Believing that God can heal and restore. If there's more use, if there's more service to be done, there's, there's more that needs to be accomplished. Yes, God will raise one up to the service. Listen, what did God tell the one little girl he raised up when he healed her? What does the Bible say? He, she got up and served the Lord. Do we think that healing is just for our own enjoyment and pleasure? Lord, raise me up so that I can recreate more. Lord, heal me that I just may be about myself more. Lord, heal me that I just may be more ungodly. Oh, that He might raise us up for greater service and greater usefulness to His glory, the kingdom of God and the people of God. J. Adams, let me, read him, let me read him his comments again. They're good on this verse. That it was in faithfulness that you have afflicted me. He says, consider this verse together with 67 and 71. There can be no question about the psalmist's assertion. He knows it to be true. Such certainty and affliction not only is commendable, but is essential to weathering it successfully. Only at this point does it become clear that though he may use human instrumentality, medicine, Ultimately, the affliction comes from God. Some counselees struggle with that fact. See, we all, listen, do you think there's a problem with God's sovereignty in the Christian church today? Do you? Yeah. Do you not think that people don't want to face a sovereign God? 
How dare He be so sovereign? And yet, without this precious doctrine of God's sovereignty, how would we make use of these texts? How would we use this to grow in grace and to become greater appreciative of our God and His care for us? What if God never drew you back? What if He let you go? What if He just let you go? What kind of God and compassionate God would He be? He says, if that were so, the universe would not be out of control and would have little or no meaning. That is, without God's sovereignty, J. Adam says, the universe would have no meaning. No meaning. There's no God. It's amazing how many discussions we can have with people that believe in evolution, that believe in, in, in random things. And my question to them is always, so what? If that's true, if we're just, if we're just a bag of, of mush, electronic impulses banging together, uh, resulting in movement, cognitive thought. I mean, it's just a bunch of, my mind is just a bunch of electrodes sparking and, and therefore allowing me to have some type of, of uh, mental reasoning abilities, cognitive skills. If that's all we are, so what? About anything else. Why do I care about you? Why do you care about me? Why do I care about worship? Why are we here this morning? Why do we care about work? Why do we care about anything if that's the case? Let's just eat, drink, and be merry. Let's just rob, let's use each other. I mean, because all that matters is we're just bags of impulses. We have no, there's nothing else. But it's, it's the fact that God exists and is sovereign and cares and created everything by the power of the spoken word that we know that now everything has meaning and we're not just bags of impulses sparking together, bumping up against each other, causing some effect that we are made in the image of God and therefore we act with dignity, integrity, and purpose. Even in suffering. Even in suffering. On John Knox's deathbed, his wife read sermons to him. What a woman. What a woman. Read sermons to him. But he's weak. He didn't want his mind drifting. He wanted to be focused upon the God he was about to meet. Amen. Let me just finish this and we'll close. He says, no prayer is meaningful because God is sovereign. Now listen to this. No prayer is meaningful because God is sovereign. He is the one who is engineering all that happens, including affliction, for the good of the counselee. It is in His faithfulness that He has done so. There is nothing unrighteous about what God demands and decrees. The psalmist declares, your judgments are righteous That is to say, they are always the right ones, the holy ones, the fair ones. The counselees may protest to the contrary, but all you need to do is observe that they disagree with the Bible in so doing. Their controversy is not with you, counselors, it's with God. 
How can one say that afflictions from God are given in faithfulness? The verses concern afflictions mentioned previously set forth some of the facts that support the contention. In each case, these or other factors may be pointed out. But in all those cases, one thing is paramount. Afflictions are given by God to draw Christians more closely to Himself by bringing them more closely to the Bible. Don't ever separate the two. You can't draw closer to God without drawing closer to His Word. Always make that point in discussing such matters. If the counselee fails to respond to this approach and ask him, why is it that you haven't been drawing more closely to God through the Word in this affliction? Now, let's close with a couple things. James doesn't say it's just prayer. He says it's prayer of faith. James doesn't say just the person is healed. If you go back and you look at James, he doesn't say just the person is healed. Notice verse 15, the prayer offered in faith. It's not just prayer. People pray all the time. They pray in faith. Believing, trusting, resting. Knowing that God is sovereign, has the power and the will and to do to make things happen for His glory and the good of His people. He says, he goes on, he says, he he does this. He says, not just the healing. He says, he will restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. What's this idea of raise up? Why did you say healed? Well, it seems to be a consensus among the commentators that to raise up is to service. That he might be raised up to live, to serve, to do more for the Lord. Well, what about the health of the body? Look at what James says. Therefore, confess your sins one to another. Pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Now, next week we're going to look at Elijah, but listen. How important is is it that we confess our sins one to another when we sin against each other? When we fail one another, we allow envy, bitterness, anger to seep in. We allow disappointment to take root. We allow so many other things to get in the way of a healthy body life. And the context is this affliction may be the result of an unhealthy body life. Because we have failed to love each other, to pray for one another, to aid one another, to do all the one another's that we are required to do, the Lord brings another sermon into our lives. We're not listening to the preacher preach the sermons of the Scripture, so now the Scripture comes to us in affliction. And He says, make sure you stay up and, and, and up to date on asking one another for forgiveness when you sin against one another. When you fail one another, when, when you're not doing your job, when you're not doing your role, when you're not keeping your vows, when you're not concerned about one another, confess your sins. And notice what it says. Look at the promise. There's a, always a promise attached to a duty and, and, and a commandment. And the Lord will raise him up. Verse 16. So that he confess your sins and pray for one another so that they for so that you may be healed. Healed. Wow. 
power of prayer in a body that is seeking to glorify God is, a, is amazing. If we're not seeing the power of God in prayer, maybe it's because we have become diseased in our soul. Maybe it's about to break out in the disease of the flesh. But let's take heed to what God has shown us. Let's repent of our sins if we need to. If not, let's praise Him. What does the text say? If you're weak, let's pray. Ask for a healing. If we're happy and blessed, what should we do? Praise God. Either way, let us serve and draw near to Him. Let's pray.